Well, good morning and early Happy New Year. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I'm Dave Bostrom. I'm the pastor of student ministries here, and I'm not used to being up in front of adults all that often. So uh, think of yourself as a child this morning. That would be great. Well, maybe don't always act like them. Uh, that would be good, too. No, I, um, I, I hope you had a wonderful Christmas. Uh, I, I think a lot of times uh, when we have Christmas, one of the things that uh, can happen as we go through that uh, whole routine of it. And sometimes we get those glimpses and we go, oh, this is amazing. And then um, we kind of get past Christmas and then we kind of start getting back into that routine a little bit. And uh, so I, I just pray that uh, Christmas was a time really for us to refocus, kind of to, again, maybe learn some things new about uh, God's love and what it meant when he sent his son Jesus to us in human form. Um, But I think the passage I'll be looking at here in Ephesians uh, also parallels well with this message of Christmas because we speak so much, or this passage speaks so much of God's love, His mercy, and His grace. Uh, I titled the sermon, That Was Then, This Is Now. It's really this kind of idea of looking back, uh, kind of before. Uh, what were things like before? We kind of look at the present briefly, but then what are they, what should they be like in the future? Well, I'd encourage you to uh, pull out your note sheet uh, that's in your hot sheet and maybe jot down a note or two. There's an outline in there. I won't use all the passages that are listed there, but I'll use many of them. So if you don't, uh, if you're like, oh, which one was that? Uh, most of them should be there for you. I don't know if you know, but uh, one of the things I do enjoy doing when I watch TV is watching those do-it-yourself things. Not that I'm great at it, but, you know, uh, I do like watching these shows. You've got everything from yard crashers to bath crashers to, you know, to um, flip or flop and rescue my renovation, just to name a few. But it's interesting, the, the shows really are not all that complicated. And you may not have noticed, but they've got kind of a five-step plan that makes a good DIY show. So I thought for a way for us to remember this kind of message, because I think sometimes we can get through these things, and is I'm going to use these five steps to go through our passage of Scripture today. And uh, some of you are going, oh boy, this ought to be interesting. Um, or not. <laughs> But let me give you the steps first, uh, just so you know. First of all, when you watch those shows, they give you the current condition. They show you, okay, here's the house that need, that has a project. It, it, it's in bad repair. It needs something done to it. The second, there's a designer, somebody that comes in with a plan and tells you, here's what uh, we're going to do to it. Third, they begin the work with the owners, the assistance of uh, the owners, the family, contractors. They come in and they're ripping everything out that doesn't need to be there. Um, Then you've got the problem, the crisis. There's always a crisis going, I don't know if we're going to get this done on time, you know, because we're way behind, the weather's been bad, or it's a money issue. I don't know if we can do that repair because it's going to cost too much, and it threatens to derail the whole project. But then, of course, the fifth step, and I call this kind of the after too, is it reveals the transformation that's taken place. It's like, wow, this was like this before, and now this is what it looks like now. And you see this gratitude from those that had this project done for them. And so that's what we're going to do in Ephesians 2, and I'm going to explain kind of how those things piece together in just a moment. But I don't think, um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I think when we're in the midst of a tough situation, it's hard really to have the proper perspective about it at the time when we're actually going through it. 
See, I know for me that oftentimes uh, I've got to kind of step back from it after the event to sometimes look at the significance of it. Because as I'm going through it, I don't always see the significance of it. But when I take a step back, I typically can go, whoa, okay, I didn't really realize all those other pieces were going on. And I think this is a passage that uh, the Apostle Paul does just that when he's writing to the church in Ephesus. And what you'll also notice in this passage is that chapter 1 and 2, really, if you were to look at the original, they really don't break where chapter 2 comes in. It is one kind of continual thought. But what's really uh, neat about it is the theme that I think Paul is trying to draw out is this idea of the working of God's mighty power. His mighty power. The work that He began way before and continues to do today, to us, uh, do for us today. So in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, we get this idea of a before picture. Who we are, I, I would say, it's who we are in Christ. And uh, we, we get to see His grace. And then in verses 4 through 7, we see kind of this after a picture. Um, it's uh, what we could say, who we are in Christ. And then verses 8 through 10 give us this picture of remind, Paul reminds us that it's through God's gift of Jesus that we receive his riches. So, the first step we need to be honest about our current condition. I'm going to read this passage a couple times, and I, and I want you to kind of see because I think if we don't realize where we were, it's going to be hard to know where we are to go in the future. And so here I will begin in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead. Okay, and I, I, I couldn't put it on the screen, but I would say D E A D, capitalized, bold faced. That is the point. We are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul's given us a pretty clear before picture. And so he's, he starts off with this idea that we're dead. Well, I have a clip from a classic movie. I think it's a classic, but uh, The Princess Bride to help us discuss this idea of being dead. Where's that bellows cramp? He probably owes you money, huh? Well, I'll ask him. He's dead. He can't talk. Look who knows so much, huh? Well, it just so happens that your friend here is only mostly dead. There's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Please open his mouth. Now, mostly dead, he's slightly alive. Now, all dead, well, with all dead, there's usually only one thing that you can do. What's that? Go through his clothes and look for loose change. Hey! Hello in there! Hey! What's so important? What you got here, that's worth living for. True love. True love. You heard him? You could not ask for a more noble cause than that. Sonny, true love is the greatest thing in the world. Except for a nice MLT, mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwich when the mutton is nice and lean and the tomato is ripe. 
They're so perky. I love that. But that's not what he said. He distinctly said, to blave. And as we all know, to blave means to bluff. Huh? <laughs> well, I show that just to kind of, this idea that when he's talking about mostly dead, Paul is not talking about mostly dead. He's talking about that we are all dead. I mean, there, there is no um, in-between. The actual word that Paul uses is from the Greek word nekros, which literally means one that has breathed his last, deceased, one whose soul is in heaven or hell, or it's destitute of all life. See, the point is we were all dead with no hope of resuscitation. That means we no longer had the ability to do anything. The time for making decisions or changing one's mind is gone and over. See, I think it's important for us to realize what it means to be dead in our trespasses because if we don't, we will lose sight of where the greatness of what God did in His love and mercy for us. But this passage tells us that we don't have any hope of overcoming the sin problem. Paul is saying, you have no hope. You had no hope. There was nothing there. But Because in, in Romans 6.23, Paul says this, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul uses the word hamatia, which simply translated means to miss the mark, we often hear. But it also kind of another way of kind of describing is to miss or wander from the path of righteousness or to wander from the law of God or even simply, even more simply, to violate God's holy law. Okay, so now that we understand the consequences of our sin is death, like real death. The next question we should ask is, well, how did we end up here? How did we get here? Because Paul tells us that we are disobedient and have found ourselves following three things. Okay, and so we're going to go back to Ephesians 2, verses three, uh, two, 2 and 3. It says, In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body, of the body and of the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we see three things here that uh, Paul's describing to us. The world, Satan, and our flesh. These are the things that are at work. In Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So when we follow things, sin is going to lead us to death. So the first thing we follow is the world. We follow the world. In Romans 12, 2, the first part of it says, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There's this idea that we conform naturally to the world. That's where we go. The world system is sinful, and it seeks things that dishonor God, and our tendency is to follow it and not follow God. Second, we follow Satan, it tells us. The old, saying, the old saying, the devil made me do it? Well, that's not really all that accurate, really. Satan can't make us do anything. But what is true is that Satan is active in our world and doing what he is best at. Lying, stealing, destroying. The point is Satan and his demons are working as hard as they can to keep you from God and from you sharing the good news of the gospel. In 1 Peter 5.8, it says, Be sober-minded, be watchful, 
So be alert. Your adversary or your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Or another translation says destroy. Then later in chapter 6 of Ephesians, Paul says this when he's driving home this point. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is a war going on. The third thing is we follow our flesh. You know, this is a personal, this would be like the idea of a personal desire for self-gratification, to please the physical or emotional desires we have. The results of following our flesh often results in many types of addictions, things that we become enslaved to, things that shame us, things that make us feel inadequate or even worthless. In James 1.14, it says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So again, our natural tendency is to go that way. We need something to step in. In Romans 8, 6-8, through 8, again, Paul says this, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit, God, uh, submit to God's law. Indeed, it can't. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So following our flesh will always lead to our personal destruction. Maybe not right now, but eventually it will. It will catch up with us. Well, then in the last part of verse 3, it tells us that before Christ, we were children of wrath. So what, what is Paul telling us here? Well, I think he's saying to us that we who don't have Christ in our lives will be judged accordingly by a God who is holy. See, the word wrath also has this meaning of like anger or indignation towards something. Sin is a serious problem to God. And he plans to deal with it because he's the righteous judge. So the second step of a good DIY renovation show, the plans are these new plans that they put out there and, and show, here's what we're going to do. You know, if you, if, you have, uh, if you had a show and there was no plan, I don't know if they'd ever complete the show. You know, we would wander, we wouldn't finish the project. In verses 4 and 5, we, we get a glimpse of God's plan. And it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, okay, that same word again comes back, in our trespasses, made us alive. Together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. God had a plan to reconcile us to Himself. If we wanted it, he's not forcing us. See, we see this plan of redemption and reconciliations at work here. If we were to look back at what our current condition looked like, what Paul's reminded us, it seemed pretty bleak at the time. However, God stepped in. 
And I love how this starts. It says, but God, if you notice that, when you see something like that, those two words, it seems that it always is followed by an amazing act of his love and grace that only he could and will accomplish. We see that also in Romans 5, 8, where it says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, do you see how God acted out his love for us first? It wasn't us, it's us responding to him. What also sometimes can be missed is the fact that God is not done showing us his love. It continues. It didn't say showed his love. It says shows his love. God had an amazing plan of reconciliation and continues that to this day. See, both these passages remind us that we are dearly loved by our Creator. If you were to ask most people the question, if you could change something about yourself, most would list not only one thing, but probably list many. Why is it so often that we feel like a mistake or we're inadequate? I think it's because we forget that God has created us with a fulfilling purpose and that we are dearly loved. There's a song by the Christian band named Hawk Nelson. And in the song, they encourage or challenge the Christian listener to change their perspective a little bit in life. And they ask this question, live like you're loved. What if we did that? The song has this verse in chorus. And at the end of the service, after our final song, we have, a, have it, it'll be playing. And it says this, And live like you know your value born. Okay, You have worth. Like you know the one that holds your soul. Because mercy has called you by your name. You're not just some random thing to God. You have a name. Don't be afraid to live in that grace. So go ahead and live like you're loved. It's okay to act like you've been set free. And then listen to these words. His love has made you more than enough. So go ahead and be who he made you to be. And live like you're loved. Live like you're loved. See, this is telling us that we are secure in him. We will always be loved by him. Which means we don't need to continue to perform for this world Verse 5 is telling us that we were made, he made us alive. Remember, we were dead and had no hope of life. It goes on to say that we're not just alive, but we are together with Christ. So he didn't bring new life into us. He brought new life into us and we are with him. We have a newfound relationship with God, one that is alive and one that we, this is important to remember, didn't create. He did. It is by His grace alone we have been saved, as the end of verse 5 tells us, as well as in the verse 8 tells us. It was interesting when I was looking at verses 6 and 7, I noticed something that I hadn't before, and I believe Paul was intentionally wanting to communicate this. In verses 6 and 7, they also seem to parallel well with Ephesians 1, 20 and 21. But it says this, and we're picking this up from verse 5. It says, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. See, Paul mentioned two deliberate acts of God. He raised us up, was the first, and seated us with him, is the second. 
See, I think again, Paul sticks with this before and after, or even another way of looking at it is our current state versus our future state. Remember, we were dead and now we are alive with Him. So as we live our lives here on earth, we live in the power of His resurrection and His love. Of being, you know, because before we were spiritually dead, not being alive. And after our physical death, in the second part, it tells us that we are still with Christ. We will still be with him, and he will continue to show his, which this is amazing to me, in heaven, he will show us his matchless grace and kindness. I mean, that's amazing. Like, that wasn't enough, just going to heaven to be with him. He's going to continue to show us these things, because that's who he is. Remember, Paul doesn't want the reader to lose sight of how all this is possible. So he keeps bringing it back to us. He uses the term with Christ or in Christ five times just in verses 5 through 7. And this is not an, ex- or an accident. This is an emphasis. See, our tendency is to take credit for the things we have done, to get the recognition we think we deserve. But here we're reminded that it is God the Father and Jesus who acting in unison provide us with new life, not us. Well, the third step is we see that in these shows, they, they tear out and they remove all the unnecessary items. If you uh, have ever done a renovation project, it's amazing what you'll find. But the goal is ultimately to break things down, to just the necessary items, save what is still sturdy and useful, and dispose of what is not. This is much like what Christ does in our life when we surrender our life to him. He begins the process of removing those things that hinder us. I think a lot of times this process can feel pretty uncomfortable and even at times unbearable. If you're wondering, there's a video I don't have time to show, but it's by the skit guys, and you can find it on YouTube, called God's Chisel. And it speaks of this very specific thing, of God working in those uncomfortable areas of our life. I'm going to step out of Ephesians. We're going to move to Hebrews 12 briefly. It's just a few books after Ephesians. Um, I'll have the verses on the screen for you. Um, but uh, I think this next step kind of lends, it well, it lends itself well to this. It says, My sin and your sin is very powerful. It's a very powerful thing and it's active in our lives. So God, again, in His great love, His mercy, His grace, is willing to do the most loving thing and discipline us. Okay, I'll be honest, I don't like to be disciplined. Most of us, I don't think we're the first ones in line to receive the punishment. We're usually trying to avoid it if we can. But the interesting thing about discipline, when done in love, helps us to refocus and get back on track. It's also a time, I think, that we can start fresh and kind of put those things behind us and, and move forward. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. See, verse 1 is talking about this idea of throwing off or laying aside anything that hinders us. Why? Because it slows our progress. It gets us off track. It's kind of like a wind tunnel, if you were to think of a wind tunnel. It's designed to put an item in it and see where the drag and resistance is and then ultimately get rid of that drag and resistance on that item. 
Because ultimately, what does it do? It slows us down. Well, then in Hebrews 2 and 3, it says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was set before him, endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Well, if you look right in verse 2, what it's telling us is we have to have our eyes fixed on the right thing. The perfecter, the founder of our faith, and that's Jesus. And then Hebrews 5, 7, we get into this idea of, well, when we have our eyes fixed on there, then God is going to do this. And he says, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines, listen to this, the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? See, God is taking the time to discipline us. This really is the most loving thing He really can do for us because He wants us to be get back on track. And then why? what is His ultimate goal in this? We see in verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful, which all of us, I think, would agree with, and, and not pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If you're wondering what those fruit are, you can look in Galatians 5, 22 and 23 to get a glimpse at those. When we allow God's discipline and correction in our lives, it then helps us to do, as the Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. Just as it said, fix your eyes. So step four, we... We, how are we going to re- responding to tough decisions and times that will come? There's this idea that it will come. They will happen. It's not as though it's like, I'm just going to go through this and I'm never going to have any tough times. Every one of you would raise your hand that you've had tough times. Maybe not this week or last week, but you have over the course of your life in a variety of situations. It's not as though we are looking for them, but through a variety of events we find ourselves in a tough situation that I think will challenge us and our faith. See, if you think of this, uh, of these renovation shows, there's always seems to come that time where there's tough decisions that are made and it usually is going to cost them time and money. And I think this parallels with what uh, James writes in chapter one, where he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Okay, it says you will meet. Okay, it's not as though, okay, some of you will, some of you won't. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. So we're to face trials with joy. Yeah, with joy. I mean, really? I mean, why would he say that? Well, because it produces something in us. 
This idea of perseverance that results in us becoming mature and complete and not in need of anything. Well, why won't we need anything? Because it's God himself that's providing for all our needs. And he wants us to ask for his help in all situations. God wants us to depend on his wisdom, not our own flawed knowledge. I lost my mom from complications from breast cancer a number of years ago. But as I was going through that situation, it it was really hard. It was not something I would have chosen on my own, but I knew that God had allowed me to go through it with my mom and family. As I look back at this, this time, I realized how many things God was teaching me through it. He provided me strength and peace and so much more. It was tough, but God used that to make me who I am today. It was, it's made me, I think, a better man, husband, father, maybe even pastor. See, I need to rely on God at all times, the good times and the difficult. I'll tell you, I've learned so much more in the difficult times than I ever did in the good times. So when a trial or time of testing comes your way, embrace it just as Christ embraced the cross. Because God is going to use it for our benefit, but more importantly, for his glory. So now we get to this fifth step, the after, the big reveal. And we see in this most familiar passage, probably of Ephesians 2, is these verses 8 through 10. And it's so rich, there's so much there. But if we forget where we've been, this doesn't maybe feel as though it has as much significance. And so in verse 8 it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I often hear this saying, you know, when somebody's made it big, or even a politician now during campaign season, that we must remember where we came from and not forget what made us who we are today. I really kind of feel like that's what Paul is telling us. Remember where we've come from so that we can most understand today who we are. He reminds us that it is God's grace to us that brought us to faith. It's not because of all the good works or our good intentions. It's his special gift from God. And not just as we, you know, in these last few weeks, we've just been celebrating this special gift of God's Son, Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Have you ever had someone take credit for something that you worked on or an idea you had? How did it make you feel? Maybe angry, betrayed, unappreciated, maybe even used. I find it interesting how quickly I can begin to take credit for the things that God has done in my life. I take credit for my abilities and the talents rather than giving God glory for them each time that He uses or each time He gives me an opportunity to use them. See, in verse 9, it tells us that here we are. It's not our works that produces the salvation. It's God's grace alone that does. We are always to give God credit for everything He is doing. Well, as we conclude, 
it seems fitting to end this section of Scripture this way in verse 10. For we are His workmanship. Listen to these words. Workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I don't know about you, but for me, this verse gives me a picture of my identity in Christ. My purpose in life and a call to be obedient to Him in all areas of my life. See, it first says, we are God's workmanship. Other translations use handiwork, creation, or even what I kind of feel my favorite is masterpiece. Our identity is in Christ Himself. It tells us in Ephesians 1 that we have been chosen by God and adopted as His children. In Colossians 2, it tells us that we are complete in Christ. How incredible is that? The God of all creation has made us complete? Talk about having an identity. However, the enemy wants to steal this. He wants to put our identity into the things that don't last, the things that are fleeting. Despite the mess we make of our lives, God created us as His masterpiece. I have a little video to illustrate that. I've heard it. You've heard it. It's time for a new beginning. Time to start a fresh page or paint a new picture with our life. Sounds great in theory, but it can seem impossible. Life is messy. The lines have gotten blurred. Maybe we just don't know where to start. We look at the canvas of our lives and see mistake after mistake after mistake. It's overwhelming. When I look at my life with these messy lines and scribbles, it makes me think, is this as good as it gets? There's no eraser that can make this life make sense. But what if? What if there was someone that could make sense of our mess? They could take all our scribbles, all our mistakes, all our missed opportunities, and make them into a masterpiece. And then I remember, there is... Jesus, He gives us a new life. Every day is new. Every day is a blank canvas full of possibility and promise. He takes our canvases, our lives that have been filled up with shortcomings, secrets, tragedies, and embarrassments, and He helps them make sense. When I look at the canvas of my life and I see nothing but disorder and chaos, I have to remember this. God is not a God of disorder. He's a God of peace. And you know what? He wants to take my hand and bring peace to the canvas of my life. So as we seek to make our mark, let us give God all our scribbles, all our mistakes, all our hurts, and trust that He will turn our messy lives into a masterpiece. His masterpiece. We're His masterpiece. But in that passage as it continues, it tells us that we were created to do His good works. 
Another way of putting this is all we do should be in the name, in his name and for his glory. Colossians 3, 17, verses 17, 23, and 24 tell us this. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. Our good works is a result of our life lived in Christ. Whatever we are doing in public or private, it should always be from the overflow of our gratitude for what Christ has already and continues to do in our life. And lastly, right in the last part there, there's a call to walk. And it's this idea we are called to be obedient. It says that we are to walk in these good works. That means to live them out wherever we go. Later in Ephesians 5, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. So when we live our lives for God's glory, we are noticed for all the right reasons. A question I often ask the students here at Lakewood is, when people see your life, who do, who do they see? You or Christ in you? God's way of doing things is always best, but it's not always going to be the easiest. Remember that God has given us a new identity that is in Christ, and He has given us the abilities and talents to use them for His glory. See, we're God's masterpiece, so let's live like we are and walk in His love. Let's pray. Lord, thank You. Just again, this was a great passage for me just to be reminded of how you see us. This idea that but God, that you show your love to us, that you show your mercy, that we were dead, but yet today we are alive. We're made alive because of what? Because it's in Christ we are made alive. Lord, I pray that when we leave this place, we would understand that we are loved by the Creator by You, that You made us to do Your will and to do the all for Your glory. We pray this in Your name. Amen.